This past Friday night, you may have missed it. A cosmic event took place. It was a lunar eclipse that hasn't happened like that in 580 years. Here's how it goes. Here's our moon. Here is our earth. And there is the sun. And it's been 580 years since the moon was so in the shadow of the earth for three hours and 28 minutes. And what happened on the moon? Eruptions, rocks thrown into outer space because the temperature dropped amazingly low. There was bedlam on the moon for three hours and 28 minutes because the shadow of the earth covered our moon. I read about that and I said, you know, that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about influence. We talk about our shadow. And when mine and your shadow covers other individuals who do not know God, other individuals who are fresh in their understanding of God, my choices, your choices, our lifestyle can put their whole life in a shadow of uncertainty that now they're a Christian. How should they then live? We've looked at Corinthians. We've got all the way to the point in which the church had written a letter to the Apostle Paul, and they wanted answers to questions they had. You see, the city of Corinth was so inclusive, so tolerant of anything, anybody from all over the world, any belief, any ideology, any vocation. Come on, Corinth is an open city. And now here comes the Christian church established there in a city that had no bounds, a city that was known worldwide for tolerance. And now these Christians in Corinth didn't know how to live. They were a Christian group and a pagan culture. Does this sound familiar to anybody today? And so Paul gives answers. First of all, he makes doctrinal statements, chapters one through six, we've looked at that. Then beginning with chapter seven, he begins answering specific questions they ask of, as Christians, how do we live in this day and age? We looked at chapter seven for a long time and took a lot of detours and became expansive as we talked about marriage, children, relationships, sexuality. And we just sort of exhausted chapter seven. Now we come to chapter eight. And here the apostle is still answering questions that the church had asked him. And these answers go all the way from seven, first Corinthians seven, all the way to chapter 15. And that's where we're going. And what a wonderful trip. He talks about the Lord's Supper and what it means. He talks about spiritual gifts. 
He talks about the resurrection in chapter 15. He talks about spiritual gifts in chapter 12. And so he's answering questions that he'd been asked. And here we come to chapter number eight. I can tell you immediately we're in Barracuda waters. And we look at chapter eight. If you have your Bibles with you, good. Open them to 1 Corinthians chapter eight. If you do not, look in the pew rack in front of you. There's a Bible there. Please get a Bible. It'll help you to follow and understand what Paul was saying to the Corinthians. And I can guarantee you what he's saying to you and to me in the 21st century, especially in this time and moment in which we're called to live. So I hope you open your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter number 8. And he begins by saying to us, now concerning things offered to idols. The subject of things offered to idols. You might say, hey, boy, I wouldn't worry about that. An old boy tell me, you know, I've broken every one of the commandments. But that one about making, you know, graven images. He said, I've never done that. And he said, I've never eaten any meat that was sacrificed to idols. I'm in pretty good shape. There's one of them I've kept. But hold on, ladies and gentlemen, there's more to this than you can imagine. He says, now concerning things offered to idols, that's the subject. We know, by the way, you see the word know here? The Greek word for know there means intuitively. You know, you just, you know, you sort of common sense, you know, you, you just sort of know things. That's that word know. Now, in the next verses, one through four, another word in Greek is used for no, gnosis. And that word says that's what you learn. You learn something and you study something, that's how you know it. So no is what you naturally know, and these other six uses of the word no says you learn, you experience things. Look how this fits. We know that we all have knowledge, and then we have the contrast here. Look at it. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. The word edifies means builds up. Knowledge puffs us up. Love builds us up. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know, there we are. And then he goes and talks about love of God. He says, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Look at the contrast. Knowledge puffs us up. Love builds up. The more we think we know, the more ignorant we are. When I finished high school, confession, I wasn't particularly a top-of-the-class student. When I graduated from high school, I thought, I hate to confess this, I knew a little bit about everything. You know, I really did. You know, I, I'd studied history, and I'd had a smattering knowledge, and I was ready for the world. All I had to do was to pick up on a few things, and I really felt I was very smart, and I knew a lot of things when I finished high school. When I finished college, I said, I may be the dumbest person in the world. 
and I was graduating from seminary, graduate school, I said, I know I'm the dumbest person in the world. Take a leaf. You know anything about a leaf? Just a common leaf, pick one off any tree. You could spend a lifetime as a botanist studying a leaf, and you'll not get that deep into understanding just the common leaf. So any times we think we know something, we get puffed up. And now he's going to talk about things that we know and things we do not know. Contrast, love builds up, knowledge puffs up. Beautiful illustration of that is Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. This Jew was robbed and beaten up and thrown in the ditch, left to die, critical condition. And here comes the priest is going by to an ecclesiastical meeting, very important. And by the way, you could recognize a priest for all of his robes, all of his colors, and all of his gown and his hair. You knew everything about it. Here comes the priest going to a very important meeting. He sees the Jew here beaten up, but he, he, he's late, and he went by on the other side. Here comes the Levite. He's also a scholar. The priest would be the one who would take care of all the things, all the sacrifices. He'd preside there in the temple, and he would know how to nod and how to bow and all the gestures, and he'd memorize all the appropriate scriptures, and he had a voice that had the, the ring of stained glass in it, and he was a priest. And then here comes the Levite. He was a scholar. He studied the text. He knew the Hebrew. He knew the Aramaic. And he had taken the teachings of Moses, the Pentateuch, and he had listened to the oral tradition. See, a rabbi would interpret something in the Old Testament, and it would become oral tradition. And after years, they would write it down. And then that oral tradition became Talmud's. And the Talmud is simply a, a commentary on that which a lot of rabbis has taught about that particular verb or that particular verse there in the teaching of Moses. So this Levite, man, he was a scholar. And he walked like a scholar. He looked like a scholar. He had glasses probably like milk bottle bottoms. I don't know. But he was a scholar. But he saw that beat up Jew. <sighs> he went by on the other side. Here comes this sort of outcast, <laughs> and that's being nice. This Samaritan, half Jew and half who knows what, and he goes by and he sees that Jew dying, beat up, and he stops and goes down in the ditch. He picks him up. He ministers to him. He does the best he can. He puts him on his camel. He takes him there to an inn, and he did everything he could to get help and wrapped him up and got him comfortable and left money for the innkeeper to look after him. He said, I'll be by in a few days and see how he's doing and look after him. And Jesus told this story. He said, which one of these three individuals was a brother to that Jew? These two big shot Jewish leaders who had all the knowledge that you want about God and the Bible and they knew it all or about that just run-of-the-mill, you know, throwaway outcast 
Which one? was really a brother. You see there in that story the difference between knowledge, which tends to puff us up, and love, which tends to build us up. And now we get to the real issue. He tells us exactly what it has to do with idols, but something specifically about idols. And you say, this isn't applicable, just watch. Therefore, he says in verse four, therefore, by the way, you see therefore in the Bible, guess what it's there for? It's therefore to tell us in light of what has already been said, now here is some application to it, and look what he says. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that the idol is nothing in the world and there is, there is no other God but one. He said, we're talking about meat sacrificed to idols. And he looks at that problem and he looks at it with the lens of knowledge in these first verses we'll look at. He looks at it from a knowledge perspective. And he says, well, you know, an idol is nothing. It doesn't mean anything. We've gotten behind that. I've thrown all the idols out the window. Man, I don't, you don't believe as a Christian that Zeus is up there running the atmosphere. Athena is there running the world. And Poseidon is there, the god of the sea. And Bacchus and, and Corinth, my goodness, they had temples to every kind of idol, every kind of deity, every kind of mysticism, all types of Gnosticism, all types of magic. They had these temples, elaborate temples, just overwhelmed over the acro, the marketplace of Corinth. They were tolerant, everything, everybody. And here this bunch of Christians comes in and they got a problem. As a Christian, do you eat meat that's sacrificed to idol? And you have two perspectives here. One, they look at the problem through the lens of knowledge. Follow me. And then we're going to see they look at the problem through the lens of love and look at the two different interpretations. Well, what's going on? Simply this. There in pagan temples, they'd bring sacrifices of animals. And those who would lead in the pagan temples, they would take the sacrifice. They would slice off a hind quarter for themselves. They would burn a little bit on the altar and they'd take the rest of the meat and sell it. Or they open up restaurants in all these pagan temples. You want really a good, good meal, something to really eat. Don't have to go to the Taste of Texas, go to a pagan temple. It was right there. And so that's what they did. And so they looked at that problem there in Corinth, but in Jerusalem, the problem be handled different. The Jews would bring all their sacrifice to the altar and the priest would take and burn a part of the sacrifice in the altar and take from, from himself and then he'd burn the rest. They would never take a sacrifice and put it out for sale. So you had a problem here in Corinth because now these who had come Christians, they were asking the question, you know, now I'm a Christian. I used to worship all these idols and go to these various temples because they were very syncretistic and, and they were very, you know, liberal and open and toler tolerated everything and everybody, all cultures, language, just all the world, no problem in Corinth. 
And now you see they look at this problem through knowledge. What's the answer? He says, an idol is nothing in the world and that there's no other God but one. But even if there are so-called all these gods and goddesses, gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us Christians, there is one God, the Father of whom all whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. That is one of the finest Christological statements. In other words, explanation of Christ in all the Bible. You could spend a month just studying that one phrase. And the Jews, I, don't, I think they were among the mature. They looked at this from a perspective of knowledge. Because what had the Jew heard all their life? Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, there is one Lord and there is one God. They were monotheistic. Not many gods, not polytheistic. And, and there was polydemonistic also involved in this. There's one God. And they looked at it from an intellectual perspective. They said, meat sacrifice to idols? There's no such thing as an idol. Man, that, that's the way we used to be. And by the way, we don't have any problem with that, do we? Anybody come up in a home when somebody would say, you know, I've had the flu in two years, knock on wood. Anybody ever done that? Would you lift your hand, please, and confess with me? Oh, yeah. What about putting a hat on a bed? Oh, oh. a black cat goes by, oh, that's evil. Oh, yeah, we... We have, what was that knock on the wood about? You see, in, in demonic areas, they believe in wood. And by the way, this is plastic. Uh, they, they believe wood had spirits in it. And when you brag or said something, you would knock on wood, hoping that spirit would interpret to those who heard you brag that you really wasn't, were not braggadocious. Oh, yeah. All that culture behind. And so here we have these. Greeks, these Gentiles, these Romans, a Gentile, remember, everybody's not a Jew, and they had been brought up in all of this evil, demonic culture, worshiping all these gods and goddesses, and now they'd come to Christ, and, and they'd realize that, man, these are dead, but the Jews got it quickly. There's only one God. They had no problem with all this, and therefore the Jews thought, well, in this question, whether we go and have a stake in one of the pagan temples, and the meat had been sacrificed to, to idols. You know, what should we do? The Jews said, that's easy. Huh. There's only one God. These idols, they're nothing. You know, pass the ketchup, you know, what about salad? They had no problem with it. And so we see that seemed to be the logical answer. That's the way you use knowledge. That's just common sense, isn't it? All this is not real, all these, that's pagan, I understand that, there's only one God, the living God, and therefore, throw it to one side. But, whoa, it's not that simple. There's another group. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. Boy, these Greeks and Romans who had come out of pagan worship of all these gods and goddesses, they didn't easily come to the decision, there's just one God. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol 
and their conscience being weak is defiled. Oh, oh, oh. hadn't thought about that. The moon overshadowed by the earth. Christians going and eating meat sacrificed to idols. And when new Christians, people coming out of a pagan culture, they realize, man, if Christians are going in there where we used to eat, they're going to those temples where we used to go, man, is I may be destroying them and hurting them. They have a weak conscience. Then there's little princesses here. Verse 8, but food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we worse. In other words, eating is not going to get you to heaven. Not eating is not going to get you to heaven. Drinking is not going to get you to heaven. Drinking is not going to send you to hell. The problem with God is not eating or drinking. Let's stop and deal with our modern-day idols. Let's just start with an easy subject like alcohol. I mean, that's, you know, no problem with that, is there? Everybody gets quiet. Don't know why. This is the issue here. My dad drank. He's in heaven today. My mother did not drink. She's in heaven today. The relationship with God is not based on what you do and what you don't do, what you drink, what you don't drink, what you eat, you don't drink. Understand that. But the problem here is different. If I could point out in here and say categorically, you will become an alcoholic if you drink, you'll not, you'll not, you'll not, you'll not. you will, you'll not. We can't do that. Nobody can do that. In medical science, they can't do that. And so we realize in our society, we have to make a choice. That's our modern day eat sacrifice to idols. Now, it's not a matter of salvation, but it's a matter of whether or not we approach this from a view of knowledge. You know, I can choose to drink or not drink. Or we look at it through the lens of love. In other words, would my drinking, my shadow, influence anybody else? Ladies and gentlemen, if you've been to enough homes where children, young men were killed from drinking, if you've been in enough homes where divorce took place because one of the mates were drinking, if you've been through all the multiplicity, multiplicity, multiplicity of problems with alcohol in our society, you might look upon your choice whether to drink or not drink through different eyes because the truth is in Christ, we are our brother's keeper. Now, I've decided, not as a pastor, but as a Christian, because I have a responsibility to others and to witness to others, and I can't sit down and talk to somebody whose life is broken through alcohol. I have a responsibility to that person. That's what Paul saw. Paul had no problem with eating meat sacrificed to idols. A lot of people do not have a problem drinking, but when you look at it, not through knowledge, we have a choice, but through the eyes of love, whoa, we back up. And through our circle of influence that you and I have, we back up on that. We back up on that. And that's the reason I ask everybody to back up on that. Does anybody know anything really good that came through someone who drank and drank and drank? Can you name an illustration of that in your entire life? So don't go and say, boy, that Baptist preacher today, he just scolded us and dangled us over the fires of hell over liquor. You can't say that. That's not what I'm saying. 
I'm saying very clearly that we can look at it through knowledge or we can look at it through love and look at it through influence. That's the reason we ask the spiritual leaders in our church not to drink, not any pious thing, but because of influence, because of the challenge we have, because it weakens our witness for Christ. Harry Ironside, great teacher of the Bible, another generation. He was in, I think, Philadelphia. Had a large crowd. He taught the Bible for two hours in the morning, and they had a, a dinner on the ground, blankets, and they were serving things, and he had to be seated with Mr. Ali, who had been a Muslim. And this Muslim had come to Christ, and he, he was a dynamic Christian. He and his wife and his family a witness in the community. And as they were, a little lady came by with a basket of sandwiches, and Mr. Ali said, uh, what kind of sandwiches do you have? He says, we have ham, and we have some fresh uh, pulled pork. Mr. Ali said, do you have anything else, beef? No. He said, well, I'll not have one. And he walked by, and Ironside said to him, hey, you're a Christian. You know you're liberated. You can eat pork now. Now, not like you were a mother. He said, I know that. But he said, I have decided not to do that because every three years I go back to India and I visit my dad. He said, all the family goes back to see me. He said, I go to the door. The first thing my dad says to me, have you let any of that nasty hog meat touch your lips? He says, I look at him and say, no, dad. I've never eaten any pork. He says, my dad says, come on in. And he says, I've been witnessing my, my dad and my Muslim family for years and years and years, and they're listening to me. They're beginning to understand. They're beginning to see. And you see, I've decided not to do it, so I'd keep an entree with my family. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here, ladies and gentlemen. You, you look at these problems with knowledge, intellectually, you know, it doesn't have to do with my salvation, but you look at it with the problem of shadow, of influence, of who, where you are and who I am and where we are in our society today, we look at it through different eyes. And we may need to rethink decisions that we have made. And he continues right here, teaching on this. He says, Verse 11, and because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? You say, come on in, I'm gonna drink. I know you're an alcoholic, you don't have to drink. Is that what a Christian does with a weak brother? Not at all. But when you thus sin against brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. In other words, we are our brother's keeper. This is exactly what this point is. And then finally, Paul says, let me tell you what I've decided. Now, he'd been eating meat sacrificed to idol a long time. Man, he'd been to all the restaurants. You'd be sure of that. But he made this decision because he see, saw that others were being confused by this, see, by his witness there, because they had come out of idolatry. And Paul says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. He saw that he was his brother's keeper. This is what God simply wants us to see, 
as we, as we make our decisions in this very area in which I'm talking about. If you knew how many people, a lot of young wives, particularly today, oh, just a glass of white wine, just, you would not believe the problems that we encounter in marriage and family and health and vocation. So, it's not a thing that we do intellectually. You know, we have no problem. But we are our brother's keeper, and our witness is ever, ever, ever so important. You see, the church at Corinth, they, they came out of an atmosphere where there was tolerance everywhere. That's the way we are today. The worst thing can happen to anybody, be accused of, is that you are intolerant. Whoa, you want to be called intolerant? My goodness, well, who do you think you are? And there's a new pseudo-intolerance in the Bible that's not like classical tolerance. Forbearance is the biblical word for tolerance. You have forbearance, you forbear, you, you have patience with, we put up with one another. That's the biblical word, and it's a good word, and that kind of tolerance is biblical. But then you look over at this new kind of Advent guard tolerance that we see, it's a whole different arena. And I want to show you the myth of tolerance. The truth is those tolerance police who are everywhere, have you noticed them? They're everywhere. You, you begin a new company and they're orientating you say, by the way, we're tolerant in this company. We don't have people here who are not tolerant. Go to any college university as they're bringing in freshman students. They say, boy, in this university, we're a tolerant school. We tolerate everything and everybody. Don't you come with all your bias and your prejudices. We are intolerant. We don't have intolerance. We're tolerant. But I want to show you something. I want to show you two lies about this whole business of this pseudo-new tolerance. Because the truth is, those who speak about tolerance are the most intolerant people you'll ever run into. I want you to see, look at two lies up here. The first lie, tolerant people are good and intolerant people are bad. You know, that sounds right to me for, you know, tolerant people are good, intolerant people are bad. Doesn't that sound okay? Yeah, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd raise my hand to that, except you press it a little bit. You're a male freshman at a college. Your roommate comes in. He says, by the way, tonight I'm going to bring a girl in here and spend the night with her. Well, what do you think about that? You say, well, you know, I'm cool. I, I want to be tolerant and, you know, I want to go along. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So he does. Next week goes by, he says, hey, tonight I'm gonna bring two girls in here to spend the night with me. Well, I was tolerant, that's good. Two, I'm twice as tolerant, that's even better. Oh yeah, sure, it's okay. Another couple of weeks come by and he comes in and says, by the way, I found this 15 year old, I'll stop right there. How far you take this thing of 
tolerance and just push it out to its logical conclusion, and you see where you and I and where so many people ended up. Have you read about that trans professor at Old Dominion University, college rather, in, in Virginia? He wrote a book on pedophilia, and he said we should redefine the word pedophile and call them minor attractions. In other words, people that are attracted to minors, and don't condemn them by calling them a pedophile. Evidently, at first blush, in this most tolerant, woke college, the president, the faculty, they didn't want to speak out against this trans professor because they'd be labeled intolerant. But the student body, the student body began to march and more and more marched and more and more marched until finally the president said, ho, 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 wait a minute, we're going to put him on a leave of absence. First lie. Second lie. What is wrong for you may not be wrong for me. Classical situation ethics. In other words, your idea about life, your idea about morality isn't more valid than somebody else's idea about life and morality. I mean, everybody can express their own idea about anything and in the, in the realm of debate in the marketplace, who's to say one idea is superior to another? Hey, hey wait a minute. My morality, and in the Judeo-Christian tradition of morality, we have made moral choices that are based on God and natural law, and we have made these moral choices that have stood for over 2,000 years, and for 2,500 years, choices about marriage and family have been built in biblical natural law, and that has brought us into a Western civilization that for the longest period of time in history has absolute moral standards. And you say just your idea, my idea, just is equally valid in the marketplace? You know, the KKK. <laughs> Man, you think they have an equal place with Dr. Martin Luther King? You think ISIS, who says, well, if you don't agree with my religion, I'm going to take your head off? Or you think when people come to America and you say you're free to express your religion any way you see fit? Do you think they're a mutual in the marketplace, genuine same ideas that we have there? You see what happens when we push all this forward. And then they come and say, well, you're not supposed to judge. Oh, I judge not that you be not judged. Have you really read that passage in the Bible and see what it teaches? It teaches, judge not unless you be judged the way I judge you. That's the way God is going to judge me. That's what it says. And in the next verse after that, you have to make some judgment. The next verse after that says, don't put holy things to dogs. You have to make a judgment. What is holy and what kind of dogs they were talking about. And it says, don't throw your pearl before swine and decide what's pearl and what is swine so you make judgment. By the way, God has already judged some things. We don't have to admit the judgment. And the ultimate judgment is in his hands for all of us anyway through Christ. So we don't have to do that. But if you ever want to use the word is, I-S, you can't use is if you don't judge. 
You can't even use your vocabulary. No, no, no. Bill is a good athlete. Oh, I've made a judgment. Throw is out if you don't judge. We have to judge. We're called to judge. We have to exercise discernment to live in this world. So it's important for us to understand this. Important to deal with these two lies that we hear all the time, everywhere you go, and look behind them, and you see that here, those who are the judgment police, they're, oh, you're being judgmental. Let me tell you something. I would say, yes, we as Christians are intolerant. We're intolerant at the point. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to me except by the Father. He is the way. There's not many ways. He is the path. He's blazed the way. He's paid the price of the way. He is the way. I'm intolerant about that. He is the truth. I'm standing here on this floor. That is truth. He lived out truth. And he is a life. If you want life, there's not a lot of options out there that I have seen that work. He is the way and the truth and the fight. And you want to get to the Father God. I don't know how we can get there except through Jesus Christ. I am, as a Christian, intolerant. By the same motion. Follow me. I, as a Christian, I am tolerant. The Christian religion is the most tolerant religion on the planet. I am tolerant because I say anybody can come under any conditions. You just come on, we welcome you, and we'll seek to love you. You can come addicted, you can come blind, you can become poor, you can become rich. We invite anybody and everybody from every background, every race, every nationality, every idea. Come, come, you're open, there are no conditions. We welcome you, we love you. And in this church, ladies and gentlemen, this church, we are conservative theologically, but we're liberal socially. You look around this city, you look around this state, you look around America, you look around the world, and the second family is there. We give every year over a million or two million dollars to 78 charities in our city, comes from our church. We've adopted a whole backward part of our city uh, we would say of uh, people who are suffering and people who have little. And we've adopted five schools and we're working with those birth mothers. And we're there with mentors and money and doing amazing things in all those schools. That's what we do. You let a hurricane come. You let a flood come. You let an SOS come. Our church will have two or 3,000 people on the streets Monday morning cleaning houses, feeding, loving, caring for. Anybody, anywhere, anyway, any background, you can go around the world. You can go to, well, let's start off with a place I well, particular, and that's Damascus in Syria. We have a church there by the street called Straight. And man, they're seeing hundreds and hundreds of Muslims come to Christ. We identify with them. You go to India. We broadcast in India, all over India today. We have more people, a part of this worship service in India than we do in everything else we do all around the world. And we have built houses in India. We work with the deletes, that's the untouchables, and we identify with their churches over there. We built schools, we built houses, we built bridges when the tsunami came. You can go anywhere around the world 
from Alaska, our memorabilia, educational building there. You can go to Israel in the Arab community. We help there to be, oh, I mean, this is who we are, folks. This is what we do. This is your church. This is my church. And we're open and we're loving and we're tolerant and we care about the whole wide world. And if your car breaks down and you can't afford to fix it, which happens so many times to people, we got a garage right back there with five full-time mechanics and another five or 10 volunteers, and we fix cars all the time. You pay only for your parts, and if you can't do that, we'll get you back on the road. This is our church, and I've just begun to say about it. So, we come to make moral, ethical decisions. We can look at it through the realm of knowledge, and we can look at it through the lens of love. Knowledge is super. And if we learn to look at people and look at the world with knowledge, discernment, wisdom, as well as look through the eyes of love, we are our brother's keeper. Let me tell you. That body of Christ, God will honor, and those who are within that body of Christ, we just say, whosoever will, let him come, let her come. Anybody, anywhere, anytime, any place.